But one aspect of Jesus' ministry we don't tend to talk about as much, I think, is his ascension, his return to heaven after his resurrection. I don't think it's particularly hard to understand why. The story of Jesus' ascension is only described in a couple passages in Scripture. And also, at one level, it might just seem like the ascension is a matter of, of logistics, right? Jesus was on earth. He had to get back to heaven, so he left, right? His shift was over. His ascension is his commute home. No particular big deal. We don't make much of our commutes. But I think that in overlooking the ascension, we miss a rich, rich vein of gospel truth. So I want you, for a minute, to think with me about this period in redemptive history. The period after Jesus rose again from the dead, but before he ascended into heaven. What's going on during that time? So Jesus has passed through death. He's got his glorified body. He's alive again, real, really alive. He's not a ghost. He's a, a human being alive in a glorified body. But his glorification is not yet complete. Because for those 40 days that he remained on earth with his disciples, he had not yet received the fullness of his reward. And his exaltation was not yet complete. He was already the risen king, but he'd not yet taken up his throne. If you, you know, I'm a New Zealander, so I still, I still am, uh, um, uh, I still am uh, you know, loyal to Queen Elizabeth, right? So my wife says she wouldn't even vote for me if I stood in an American election, because I've got <laughs> dual citizenship. Anyway, so God save the queen. Um, so in a monarchy, when the, when the previous king or queen dies, instantly the, the new king or queen becomes the monarch. But there is a period of time before the coronation ceremony where with all the glory and all the pomp and circumstance, the new monarch takes the throne. That's kind of what it's like between when Jesus rose and when he ascended. So now I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. By the way, if you would like, there is a bulletin insert which has an outline of my sermon if that would help you to follow along. All right, Acts chapter 1. Look at verse 6 with me, please. This is Jesus. He's on the Mount of Olives with his disciples after the resurrection, 40 days after the resurrection, and they're talking about the kingdom of God. Okay, verse 6. So when they had come together... They, the disciples, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Praise God. That's our, our mission, right? To be witnesses of his resurrection. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now that is the account of Jesus' ascension viewed from an earthly perspective as the disciples observed the event. So Jesus gave his final instructions, gave him their great mission, and then he's taken up from them out of their sight. He enters into the glory cloud of God, and he's gone. And he's not returned yet. He's not, yet set, he's not again set foot on this earth. He waits for that day when he'll return. They can't see him anymore. But that's, if you will, only one half of what happened, right? That's the departure. What was the arrival like? Let's think about what the ascension would have looked like from the heavenly side. Now we have to use our imaginations a little bit because there's no record of that in Scripture. Well, there's not any narrative uh, of that, but let's think about what the Scripture teaches that is on the other side. So the Son returns to the Father and presents Himself before Him. And the Father is well pleased with this Son of His who's returned now. He returns in triumph. He is Messiah, and He has accomplished the mission that the Father had sent Him on. He has secured redemption for His people. And as the Father takes Jesus and seats Him at His right hand upon the throne and crowns Him with glory and honor and proclaims that Jesus is the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth must and shall bow. And I just want you to imagine for a second all the wonder and the glory of it as saints and angels behold the spectacle of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ and they look with amazement at the nail holes in his hands and his feet by which he accomplished our redemption and they Worship as he returns in triumph. And you need to remember, and this is really, really crazy important, they're worshiping a man. They're worshiping a man. A human being has ascended to the throne of God. He's the God-man, of course. He's always been God, but he's come back as the God-man. Remember, Jesus doesn't shed his humanity when he re-enters heaven. Humanity wasn't a garment that he took off when he went back to be with his Father. The incarnation, the enfleshment of God the Son is a permanent, irreversible, forever and ever reality. So Jesus, having added our humanity to his divine nature and taken on our human flesh, is never ever going to stop being human. You ever think about that? Jesus is never going to stop being a human. He remains one of us. And on the day of his ascension, he who will never forget the sweat and the pain and the weakness and the toil and the tears, which the one hymn calls the wormwood and the gall, this one 
is being crowned the king of glory. The hosts of heaven bow down and worship before a man. I got to tell you, I am really, really looking forward to seeing replay footage of that one day. Now, again, we don't have any eyewitness account in the Bible of this heavenly side of these events, and yet we do have in a number of scriptures, especially in Psalms, prophetic descriptions of the exaltation of God's Messiah. So now I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to our main text, to Psalm 21. Psalm 21. We're going to listen to the Holy Spirit speak through the prophet David, and tell us about the joys and triumphs of the exalted Messiah. Let's read the whole psalm through. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of men. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So first I want you to notice that this is a psalm of David, King David. And it's not particularly difficult to see how this psalm, with all of its varying details, can be applied to David during his historical kingship. David was indeed God's anointed king, who was exalted by the Lord, given victory over his enemies, along with all sorts of rich blessings. And his joy in God was great. And at the surface level, that's what that psalm is referring to, but it goes much deeper than that. The reality is David is also a prophet, as Peter reminded the people on the day of Pentecost. And so when, when David's writing Psalms, and this is true wherever you see the Old Testament, really, I'm sure you've been going over that in Genesis, it's all about what? It's all about Jesus, right? And the Psalms are about Jesus too. So the prophet David is not just writing only of himself. He's looking forward and foreseeing and speaking about God's Christ. And this morning we're going to just unpack how this psalm is prophetically speaking about Jesus and his experience and his exaltation. So when the psalm speaks about the king, whenever the psalm references the king, we're going to see that that applies to the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. 
when the psalm talks about the Lord, we're going to see how God the Father is the one who's acting on behalf of his son, Jesus the Messiah. So two main characters in this psalm, the king, think Jesus, and the Lord, think the Father. Does that make sense? You might help find it helpful if you imagine this psalm kind of like it's background music as Jesus ascends to the Father and takes his seat on the throne at the right hand of God. So first off, notice the psalm begins by addressing God the Father. Verses 1 and 2 again. O Lord, in your strength, the King, meaning, O God the Father, in your strength, the King, Jesus the Messiah, exalts, rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You've given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Okay, so right off the bat, the king acknowledges that his exaltation is the Lord's doing. It's through the Father's strength, not his own strength, by which the Son has gained the victory. The Father brought salvation to his Messiah when he raised him from the dead. And so Jesus is rejoicing at the Father's strength, which God has exercised on his behalf. That's Ephesians 1, right? The Father's power raised the Son from the dead. And this is important to understand because it has implications for how we view Jesus' time on earth. During his time on earth, Jesus did not stop becoming God, right? He never stopped becoming God the Son, but he was really a true man. He was really, really like you and me in his manhood. We don't, we think we sometimes overlook that. He was actually, truly dependent on his Father for everything, just like you and I are. He was operating in the Father's strength, which was given to him by the Holy Spirit. And he woke up each and every day, and he desperately needed the strength of his Father. And when he laid down his life on the cross, he had to trust in the Father to save him from death. He even had to pray for the things he needed and the things that he wanted. Now, of course, we know that he did pray, but come on, do we, do we really believe that he, at the end of the day, do we really believe that he really needed to? Jesus need to pray? Yeah, he needed to pray! He needed to pray. He was dependent upon God. Verse 2, he's rejoicing that God has given him his heart's desire. He's given him the requests that he's asked for. And what did Jesus ask for? What did Jesus pray for? Rich blessings of salvation. Let's read verses 3 through 6 again to see Jesus' prayer list. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. So let's see what God has given to the Son. In verse 3, we see the Lord has given him the blessing of dominion. 
So a crown of fine gold, that's signifying Jesus' authority. We know that this was given in answer to the son's prayer. Think, don't turn, but think about Psalm 2, right? What does the father say? He says to the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. The father tells the son to ask him for the nations and he will give it to him. And Jesus, having prayed and having his request granted, says to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By whom has it been given? By the Father. I have all authority in heaven and on earth now. And on the basis of that, I can now say to you, go and make disciples of all the nations in my name. Right? That's a response to the answered prayer of the Messiah. And Jesus is full of joy that the Father has given him this dominion. Now in verse 4, we see the Lord has given him the blessing of life. In the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5 says, the Son offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Yes, Jesus was heard. On the cross, what happened? He cried out in anguish because the Father was abandoning him. The Lord was pleased at that moment to crush him and put him to grief. Why? Because he was bearing my sin and he was bearing your sin. But that was only for a moment. That was only for a moment. On the third day, the Father heard him. The Father answered him. The Father raised him back to life. He asked life. You gave it to him. On the third day, now, and now since then, the Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus is no longer subject to death, though he's a man. Never again will Jesus die. I say that to my kids sometimes. Will Jesus ever die again? No, Daddy. He never will. He's not subject to death anymore. He has length of days forever and ever. Jesus is rejoicing that he has life. All right, verse 5. The Lord has given him the blessing of glory. The night before he died, Jesus says in John 17, we call this the high priestly prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. He's praying to the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world was. That's the prayer. And God answers. God answers him. And now, having passed through the humiliation of the cross... And the grave, now Jesus is glorified. He's the glorified God-man, now sharing with the Father all of his glory and majesty. Verse 6, the Lord's given him the blessing of fellowship. See, the Son's heart's desire is to be in the Father's presence. He wants to be 
in fellowship. He wants to be in the Father's presence. And again, all over that same high priestly prayer in John 17, before he died, he longs for and prays for the fellowship and companionship of God. And he requests also that those he will redeem, you and me, will be permitted to share in that fellowship. We get to be part of the answer to this prayer request. So Jesus has said of the Lord, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And now, and now he has his heart's desire. He has returned to the presence of the Father and his joy, his joy is full. Friends, do you realize how happy the Lord Jesus is? Do you ever think about that? We think about our own happiness. Have you ever thought about Jesus how happy he is right now. I mean, you know what it's like to come home from a long journey and there's someone that you love waiting for you, eager to wrap you in their embrace, maybe at the airport terminal or as you walk in, burst in through the door. Now imagine that joy magnified a billion, billion fold and you can grasp a little bit of the happiness that the son feels as he returns to the presence of his father. God has given him his heart's desire, everything he's ever asked for of him. Don't let the fact that it's Jesus turn it into something you can't relate to because you can relate to him. He's, he's a man, just like you are. Jesus is beside himself with joy that he's come home and now he's receiving all this blessing. Now, what happens after verse 7, or in verse 7? The perspective of the psalm is going to change. Verse 7 is a transition. It gives us insight into why the Lord has blessed the king. We get to see the nature of their relationship. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. All right, so how's Jesus the Messiah relating to his father. He's trusting in him. It's a relationship of faith, dependence, constant, confident reliance. How's the father relating to the son? With steadfast love, loyal love. And isn't that the essence of a father-son relationship? Trust and love. That's a good father-son relationship. Trust and love. That's how it was all through Jesus' earthly life. Even in the crucifixion, even in, on the cross, Jesus says, what's his final words? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Trust and love. And now that same relationship of perfect trust and love continues on into eternity, never to end. Now we can move to the second half of the psalm. So we've seen the king's joy in the Lord's strength. Now we get to see his ongoing triumphs. What are, what's happening now, if you will? We see his ongoing triumphs, which are also accomplished in the Lord's strength. Now that Jesus is seated on his father's throne, what's the agenda, right? He probably got a day to rest, right? What do you, what do you think, you know, maybe, maybe a day to it took the first day a little, little light. Now, what's, what's on the agenda? My first day is, as king of heaven and earth, it's to reign. 
That's the agenda. It's to reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. Read again, verse 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Now the you is not talking about the Lord. Now it's talking about the king. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. So you've been, there's been this shift. First half, the Lord, God the Father, was being addressed. Now in the second half, the King is the one being addressed. He's the one who is continuing his victory now that he's taken the throne. And the emphasis on this psalm, there could be a number of emphases, but the, the writer chooses to emphasize how the king is, is, going to, uh, is going to work at subduing all those who are opposed to his rule. Because just because Jesus has been crowned king, I don't know, how about you in Maine, in Vermont, we can say that Jesus still has those who set themselves against him. Is that true in Maine too? Yeah. Just because he's the crowned king doesn't mean he no longer has enemies who set themselves against him. Now, what what happens to those enemies? In verse 8, the enemies are discovered. Jesus identifies those who hate them, hate him and searches them out. Verse 9 anticipates a day when he will appear in the midst of his enemies and bring about their destruction. And Jesus is going to be the agent of the Father's judgment as the Lord swallows up the enemies in his wrath. In verse 10, we see that the opponents will be left with absolutely no future. Not only are they destroyed themselves, but even their seed is destroyed. No one remains to carry on their rebellion against the king. And I think back to the ancient promise in the garden, the serpent and his seed, right? He's the quintessential enemy, isn't it? Satan will be, is in the process of being put down and all of those who are his offspring by the Lord Jesus. In verse 11, we see that down to, even to the present day, the wicked continue to plot against Jesus' rule, but their hatred against him is futile. None of their plans against him will ultimately succeed. And that is because in verse 12, he's going to fight against them and conquer them and leaving them to flee in terror. Not a single rebel against King Jesus will escape his judgment if they remain in rebellion against him. And then we finish out with verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We'll sing and praise your power. The psalm actually ends just as it started with praise of the Lord's strength and power. Even as the sun rules, even as he is working now to subdue all those who hate him, it's still the work of the Father. It's still the Father's work. It's the Father's strength and power that is sent out on behalf of the King to give him the ultimate victory. This is how Psalm 110 says it. The Lord, the Father, says to my Lord, 
Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So who's the one doing the the conquering? Is it Jesus or is it the Father? Well, it's it's both. The, The Son is conquering in the Father's strength. He's reigning in the Father's strength. Jesus triumphs by his Father's authority and with his power. All right, so we've seen this psalm. We've seen how it's connected to Jesus. Now it's time for us to ask ourselves the question, how do we respond to a joyful, triumphing king? Well, that depends. It depends on whether you today are in submission to that king. Are you today in submission to King Jesus or are you still in rebellion against him? So, let me first speak to any here who are not yet believers in Jesus. You're still withholding your allegiance from King Jesus. You haven't submitted your life to him. How does this psalm speak to you? Well, it has very sobering news, and then it has some very good news. You got to be willing to read your name in every line of verses 8 through 12 when it speaks about how Jesus will deal with his enemies. If you're not bowing your knee to this king, then his right hand will find you out. You who are sitting here hating him, he will make you as a blazing oven when he appears. The Lord will swallow you up in his wrath. Though you plot evil against Jesus, you will not succeed. He will put you to flight. Friend, this is your condition right now. And you say, Brad, that's, that's not me. I don't hate Jesus. I'm not fighting against him. I, I'm a non-combatant. I just want to be left alone. I just want to be on the sidelines. I don't, I'm not opposed to Jesus. I just want to live my life. I don't want to submit to him. I just want him to leave me alone. Well, friend, you're not on the sidelines. You might think so, but it's simply just not true. Jesus has inserted himself into your reality, especially by his resurrection from the dead. See, Jesus is God the Son who's come in the flesh, and God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Jesus is the one, the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And you must deal with him. He has every right to your service and he requires it of you. You owe him not neutrality, You owe him your love and your obedience and your allegiance. But right now, you will not have him as your king. And your indifference to him, your love of your sin, which keeps you from submitting to him, your refusal to come to him makes you his enemy. You cannot, no one can be neutral with respect to Jesus because he is the one appointed to judge the living and the dead. Even you're deciding to be, even you're thinking you're deciding to be, remain disinterested. 
that's where you are this morning, that's you plotting evil against the Lord Jesus and devising mischief according to this text. But you will not succeed. You just won't succeed. So I charge you to listen. Listen when this passage warns you of the judgment that is coming. Because Jesus will not endure the hostility of sinners forever. And when he does appear to make his foes a blazing oven, you're not going to get passed over. He will find you out. One writer says, reflecting on this passage, he says, your coming destruction will be total. It will leave you no peace, no joy, no hope, no comfort, no recreation, no amusement, no means of escape, no means of grace, no gospel, no heart to pray, no room for prayer, no Savior, no Comforter, no God. This is what you face if you remain in your rebellion. Won't you let that sober you? Won't you let the horror of that thought cause you to say, hey, I better reevaluate. I better surrender to this conquering king now while I still can because Jesus is still offering peace. He's still offering terms of peace to those who are in rebellion against him. If you will end your useless rebellion today and come to the cross and ask him for mercy, he will give it to you. His blood, which he shed on the cross, is sufficient to blot out all your sin, all your hatred of him. He is an able savior and he is a willing Savior. On the day of Pentecost, Peter's charging the crowd. They're cut to the heart because they realize they've just crucified Jesus the Messiah. They say, what do we do? And he says, repent, for the promise of salvation is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Salvation remains available today. The hands of Jesus the King are still extended in mercy. Will you repent today and have him? Now let me speak to those who have bowed themselves before this king. This glorious, wonderful king. Isn't it a blessing to serve him? It's a blessing to serve this king. This king who's gentle and humble in heart, who gives rest to those who come and submit to his yoke. Brothers and sisters, here's a few ways we can faithfully respond to Psalm 21. Number one, when we think about our Savior, to just be happy for him. Just be happy for him. Have you ever thought about the blessedness of the Lord Jesus and how happy he is right now? Now, we naturally, when we have those we love and something goes well for them, we, we love to rejoice with them, don't we? Well, the same thing can be true of our Lord Jesus. We can just be happy that he's happy. We're people who regularly come together to remember his death for us, his sufferings for us. We always want to keep the cross in our minds. That's a great instinct. But we should also glory in his exaltation. 
Let's rejoice with Jesus, who is himself rejoicing. Let's be glad that he is glad. He's glad that he is king. Let's be glad of that. That he's received all these blessings, the time of his humiliation and his sorrows and his suffering is at an end. We can be glad for him. Number two, let's long for a day still to come, the day when his happiness will be made complete and every bow is put on it and every cherry is put on top. Right? That day is still coming. Even though the Lord Jesus right now, today, rules in blessedness and joy, we also recognize his rule is still opposed and his name is still blasphemed among the nations and billions of people are today refusing to bow down before him. And Satan and his forces still plot against him. The nations still rage against him. So have you ever thought about the second coming in this way? That it will put an end to all that opposition and hatred. Do you ever look at the second coming not from your perspective, but from Jesus' perspective? That he's coming back to vindicate himself. And are you eager for that? Are you eager to see him fully triumphant, fully at peace, because every enemy's mouth has been stopped forever? Do you pray for that day to come so that he will receive his inheritance in full? When every knee, human, angelic, will bow before him and every tongue confess him as Lord, as we read in the call to worship. Let's think about his coming, not just because it will complete our happiness, which it will, which it will, but that it will complete his happiness. Don't we want him to experience joy in all of its fullness the way he one day will? Let's pray. What do we pray? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When's that day finally going to come when he comes down and brings the kingdom in its fullness? Let's pray for that day because we're happy for him. Number three, we need to recognize that as believers, we're already in Christ. We're in him, as Ephesians 1 loves to remind us. Therefore, we too are in a really real sense at the right hand of God and seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. And what does that mean for us here? It means that even in the midst of our current sufferings, and I don't, I don't know you, beloved, but I know some of you must be going through deep suffering in a crowd this size. But in our current sufferings, we're already partakers of his glory and his triumph. And we already share in the blessings of dominion and life and glory and fellowship with God because we're in Jesus. And so everything that's his he gives to us. We don't have them in full yet, but we have them in as a down payment. So if you're a child of God this morning, it doesn't matter how troubled your heart is, and it may be very troubled. It doesn't matter how tough things seem to you today, and they may be very tough. You are, right now, united to the blessed triumphing Lord Jesus Christ and you share in his exaltation already. And that's why Paul in Romans 8 can say, 
What are we going to say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will all these bad things, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, can those things separate us from the love of God? No. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's tough. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So let that help you. If you're in a time of suffering, let it help you to realize that you are united to the one who sits on the throne and in some measure share his exaltation. Even now, you're a child of God. They can't take that from you. If you're struggling to get perspective, let that help. You're united to Jesus in his blessed, triumphing joy. And finally, let us soberly consider any areas of our lives that are still not well submitted to his rule. Any little pockets of rebellion that remain. Are there sins that you've kind of made peace with? You've decided kind of that it's okay if they stick around. Brothers and sisters, will Jesus tolerate that, do you think? Will he let you take those into heaven? Of course not. Will he, will he let you keep them on earth? No. The king who is intent on destroying every evil, will he want you to remain harboring evil? No, he wants you to view your sin with the same hatred that he feels for it. It doesn't have any place in his blessed kingdom. And he will not let it spoil his joy and his triumph. And he's not going to let it stop your joy and triumph either. So let us be diligent and repent. Would you be willing to take this step? Take time. Maybe take time this afternoon. Consider if there's sin. If there's, maybe just seek to identify one sin where you've become lax at fighting it and you've almost made peace with it. And then talk. Talk to a trusted brother or sister or a Scott or one of the elders. Have a conversation with them about how you could begin to wage total war against that sin. Don't give it quarter. Be willing to work and to fight to put that sin to flight in your life because that's what Jesus is intent on doing with all of his enemies, including sin, the sin in your life that remains. So friends, Jesus has ascended. He's ascended to the Father's right hand. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He's blessed. He's happy. He's conquering. And may God give you and me the grace, whether we're Christians, whether we're non-Christians, to believe that that's true and respond as if it's true and be glad that it's true. Because of course it is true. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful that the Lord Jesus today is seated on his throne and you are in the process of giving him the nations 
One soul at a time, you are bringing the nations in submission to him. Lord, if there are any here today who are not yet in submission to him, would you work in their hearts to cause them to bow before this all-conquering king for their eternal good and his eternal glory. Lord, we pray that for all of us who believe that we would be happy in our Savior, we'd be happy that he's happy, that we would live to further his joy and his triumph. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.